This is Brian Levine, former Disneyland train conductor, wishing you all aboard for Stories of the Magic. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to episode 58 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. We're in a series of firsts here on the show, because today we have another one. This time we have part one of my interview with Disney legend, Imagineer and more, Rolly Crump. If you're a fan of It's a Small World, the Enchanted Tiki Room pre-show area, and even the night lighting at Disneyland, then you're a fan of Rolly's work. I am so honored to get to have had this wonderful conversation. I got to ask a number of questions I've never been able to ask before, and for the first time, hear stories about Walt Disney from someone who worked with him personally. Now, in case you have sensitive ears, there is a little bit of PG-level language sprinkled throughout this interview. You'd hear worse in almost any primetime TV show nowadays, but since the interviews here are usually 100% G-rated, I just thought you should know. I want to get into the interview as soon as possible, so let me just tell you that today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at storiesofthemagic.com slash audible. There's over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, including my own book, Faith in the Magic Kingdom. In this episode, Rolly talks about how he got started working for Disney, why starting at the company was a shock to him, and why he loved it. His first assignment as an artist, being an in-betweener, animating the spots on the Dalmatians in the 101 Dalmatians animated feature, whether he wanted to be an actual animator or not, his first assignment with WED, now Walt Disney Imagineering, how he designed the Enchanted Tiki Room pre-show area, whether he enjoyed being thrown into things he'd never done before, and why, his philosophy, Walt's philosophy of what made a good work environment, working on concepts for the Haunted Mansion with Imagineer Yale Gracie and the Museum of the Weird, his roles in It's a Small World, and something very interesting about how the teams designed and built it, some of the things still in the attraction that he did, how the clock in front of It's a Small World got there and Walt's hand in it. That's something I bet you probably didn't even think about, but it's there and it's got an interesting story behind it. Installing the attraction at the New York World's Fair, watching guests experience it, and then moving it to Disneyland. Experiencing the World's Fair, and what Walt expected his people to do while they were there, and everywhere else. Two instances where Dick Irvine didn't think Rolly would get a project done, but he did it anyway, including the Adventureland Bazaar. Something he learned from Walt, and becoming Supervising Art Director of Disneyland. Not exactly a promotion. Now, a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and begin this story. On September 22, 2004, Oceanic Flight 815 left Sydney, Australia, bound for Los Angeles, and crashed on a remote and mysterious island somewhere in the South Pacific. 
the survivors quickly realized this was no ordinary island. The groundbreaking Emmy Award-winning drama Lost ran on ABC television from September 22, 2004 to May 23, 2010, and remains to this day one of the greatest television series of all time. Relive every moment of this amazing series as we reopen the hatch and take you deep inside each episode of this epic series. My name is Joyce. And I'm Al. And on our show, Lost Flight 815, We'll cover each episode of this immensely popular series in a unique way. We'll watch the show as we record and share our thoughts and lost facts while you listen to the episode with us. So tune in to the Lost 815 podcast and visit us on the web at www.lostflight815.com and relive one of the greatest shows of all time. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at LostFlight815. And now, this week's interview on Stories of the Magic. Today on Stories of the Magic, I again have the pleasure of interviewing a former Imagineer and a Disney legend and bring you a first for me, as this is the very first person I've interviewed who knew and worked with Walt Disney personally. Rolly Crump joined the Walt Disney Studios in 1952, working as an in-between artist and later assistant animator, contributing to Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, 101 Dalmatians, and others. In 1959, Walt moved him to show design at Wed Enterprises, now known as Walt Disney Imagineering. There, he became one of Walt's key designers for some of Disneyland's groundbreaking new attractions and shops, including the Haunted Mansion, the Enchanted Tiki Room, and the Adventureland Bazaar. Now, there's much more I would like to say, but it's probably better if we talk about it instead. So I'll just say that he released his autobiography, It's Kind of a Cute Story, in 2012, co-written with Jeff Heimbuck, and has released three CDs of more stories, with another one out in May. Raleigh, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to Stories of the Magic. It's a pleasure to be interviewed. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. In the introduction, I kind of gave people a little hint, but could you tell me how you got started working for Disney, and what you did at first. Well, getting started with Disney was a dream that I'd had. Uh, You know, growing up in those years, in the 30s and the 40s, and being an artist, everyone dreamed to work for Walt Disney. And I was one of those dreamers. And I just, uh, for me to work for Disney would have been an absolute delight. And my mother actually wrote a letter to Walt when I was 16 and tried to get me a job. And, of course, they were nice enough to write back and say, no, he's still a little young, come back later. And I don't know who the hell sent that letter back, but I'm sure it wasn't the old man. But, uh, like I said, all artists wanted to work for Disney. And, you know, the interesting thing about uh, when I was hired in animation, I didn't have a clue what animation was. I didn't know how they did it or how you drew it. I knew nothing, absolutely nothing, to where a lot of the kids – that got jobs working in animation that worked at Chouinard Art Institute and learned what it was all about to have three pieces of paper on your pegs and a light behind it and start flipping it and drawing the lines in between. And so it was really, it was quite a shock for me, but it was marvelous. I didn't, I just loved it. That's great. Wow. So when you first started there, 
What was your very first assignment? Uh, working on Peter Pan. It was Peter Pan. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. I was doing in-betweens on Peter Pan. In fact, it wasn't too long ago that Marie and I saw the little Peter Pan once again, and I got to point out to the scenes that I actually worked on to her for her. <laughs> Can you tell me which ones they were that I can look for? Well, there's a couple. One of them is when uh, Shmi is nailing up a sign on board the ship. That's one of them. And uh, one of the other ones is when Peter Pan is dressed up with a, a big bunch of feathers like he's a, uh, a Indian chief, and he's walking very uh, boldly towards you. So I remember that one. And uh, I can't quite remember all of them now, but there there was a bunch. Those are a couple of good ones to look for. So those yeah, are yeah. pretty easy to find. I'd actually always wanted to talk to an in-betweener because that seems like such challenging work. Uh, just I can't imagine it's got to be months for just a little scene. Yeah. How did you deal with so much uh, time and effort put into just you know a little bit of time on screen. Well, it's really kind of interesting because you really have to look at it that that's uh, 24 drawings a second. In other words, 24 frames a second. So when you do one drawing, it's just a fraction of a second that you're doing. And sometimes a good example is that when I first started working there, when you were doing in-betweens, they would check with you every day about how many in-betweens you did. And uh, if it was a shorts cartoon with Mickey Mouse or Goofy and those guys, you were supposed to do 30 drawings a day. We really pushed hard to do that. In fact, I worked so damn hard because I, I was so serious about it. I produced the more in-betweens during that time frame. And I was very proud of that fact that they told me I was like in third place about producing the most in-betweens on a daily basis. And the other, other thing that was interesting is... Goofy, you know, you do eight Goofies or whatever, but if you did Peter Pan, that was equivalent of like three Goofies. So they they gave you a little bit of uh, advantage when you're working on the uh, feature films. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like seeing your work after you when you were working on Peter Pan and then the first time you actually saw it? Well, the finished product was incredible. Of course, you have to remember, we saw bits and pieces of that while it was being produced. You know, in other words, they call us up and they had what they call ARIs and they would have footage that had already been produced and we would look at it and we'd, we'd fill up forms about whether we liked it or didn't like it or which were our favorite characters. So we were heavily involved with knowing what was going on with every film that you worked on because you you were just doing that. Okay. And then I know after you worked on Peter Pan, a little while later on, because I've listened to a bunch of interviews with you, and so I know you worked on 101 Dalmatians with Eric Larson. Yes. Uh, and you did the spots yes. on the Dalmatians. <laughs> Yeah, well, the interesting thing about doing the spots is the puppies were animated. Mm -hmm. And then it was my turn to put spots on the puppies. Well, I developed all the different patterns for each one of the puppies. And one of them was called uh, Lucky. And I actually did uh, a horseshoe series of spots on the back of Lucky. And that was just the idea that I had. But anyway, what you have to do is you have to design these spots so they stay with the dog. So when the dog <laughs> is running, the spots stay right with him. And you have to remember that the, there's a, what they call squash and stretch. When the dog is running, he, he stretches out. So that meant that your series of spots have to stretch too. They just don't stay as a solid pattern because you have to remember they're on skin. 
So I worked on that, oh, on that sequence, I don't know, maybe two or three months. And uh, that was just a matter of seconds on the screen. But uh, I, was, I really learned a lot about that. I really was thrilled. That was the only piece of animation I ever really did. Eric did ask me to animate a scene one time, and I did. And he said, I don't think you were meant to be an animator, Rolly. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, I don't. I said, I love being an assistant and a cleanup, but I don't want to be an animator. Hmm. Well, it seems like a lot of people kind of aspire to those big roles of, you know, being an animator or something yeah. like that. And you really preferred the the cleanup and the yeah, in between. Yeah, I preferred really doing clean drawings, and uh, so yeah, I preferred that. And then, of course, as time went on, I realized that animation wasn't gonna. I didn't want that for a life, and that was you know just prior to when Wedra was designed, you know. So it worked out well. Oh when yes, it did. Thank asked you. Asked you to move into Wed. When you did move into Imagineering, their Wed Enterprises at the time, what was your first project for that? Well, actually, <clears throat> the very first project uh, was that we uh, Walter bought all the Oz books. He didn't own the Wizard of Oz, but he owned all the Oz books. And so there was a time when he wanted to put an Oz ride in Disneyland. And so Claude Coates was designing the Oz ride, and uh, they got me involved with Claude, and Claude had to do this whole field of flowers. And so because I had done all those propellers, Claude thought it would be kind of a neat idea for me to design a field of flowers. So I started building all these little flowers and animated for the model. And so that was the, the, the very first thing. <laughs> Luckily, the, the film got canceled, and we got, <laughs> I got off of it. Because <laughs> I don't know how many propellers I could do, you know. <laughs> right. Though you did later, as I recalled, the propeller flowers in Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Uh, for that run, yes, right? And Babes in Toyland. Okay. When I did those, it was Mary Mary, Quite Contrary, How Did Your Garden Grow? And so they asked me to design and uh, all the uh, sets. And, in other words, design the little uh, flower garden. And then also I ended up building all of them. I mean, not only do you design it, but do you actually physically build all that. You know, it was great. It was a marvelous time. And that was the thing that was so beautiful about Walt. He'd ask you to do something, and you just did whatever he asked. But now in my particular case, I wasn't supposed to be able to build anything that would go into the live-action pictures because I didn't belong to that union. So they uh, they had to have me do stuff kind of around the corner and behind the alley. But anyway, I loved it. That was great. Wow, okay. And I know then also in the park, and once I found out you were the one who worked on this, I became even more excited to talk to you. I know you worked on the Tiki Room pre-show. Yes. And I have to say that as a kid going to Disneyland, out of everything that was there, my absolute favorite thing, even when I was five, six years old, was the Tiki Room pre-show. Oh, my God. That's, well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Do you know how that came about? I think I've heard part of the story, but please tell me about it. I want to hear it from you. Basically, what happened was the Tiki Room was going to be a restaurant, and Walt always wanted people to be entertained when they were standing in line. So they knew that there would be about 100 people that would go in there to eat a meal, and so Walt knew that there were 100 people would be waiting to sit at a table. So he says, you know, we've got to have something out there to entertain them. So he says, Rolly, I want you to you know, designed a tiki garden. So what I did was I got a book on the history of all the beliefs of the islanders of the Pacific, 
and started reading up about all their different gods and goddesses. So I did a series of sketches that were really based on all the beliefs of the islanders. And uh, Walt took one look at it and said, great, let's go with it. And so I had all these little pen and ink sketches, which some of them are still available. In fact, I think, are they in the book? I don't know. Yeah, they are. Um, I'm trying to remember that. So I took those sketches to Blaine Gibson, who was a head sculptor, and I said, Blaine, I said, Walt bought off on my my, my little sketches, so we got to get these uh, sculpted. And Blaine told me, he says, Rolly, he says, I don't have time to sculpt them. And I said, well, who's going to do that? And he says, you are. And I said, I've never sculpted before in my life. And he said, well, you're going to sculpt now. So what happened was, and these are the naive years that I love to talk about so much, uh, he taught me how to build the armature, how to put the clay on. So being that I designed the sketches, it was easy for me to understand how I was going to, what the little character was going to look like when I sculpted him out. But the fun part of this whole story is that the building that we were working in was really cold. It was in the spring. And the plastiline clay that you use is hard. And you have to get it real soft to push it into the armature. And it was so cold in there, I couldn't. So I put my uh, my tiki on wheels, <laughs> and I took him out into the parking lot where the sun was. And so I, I sculpted uh, two or three of those tikis in the parking lot. So I think the the people that go to Disneyland don't realize that you do things like that. <laughs> right. You just sort of did what you had to do yeah, to get exactly, the job done. Exactly. Whatever it took to do it, you did it. Mm-hmm. And you know, just in talking to you for a few minutes so far, I'm kind of hearing a theme in the way that you kind of got thrown into things where you didn't really know a lot about animation, and then you started as an in-betweener, and then here you knew about drawing, but you didn't really know anything about sculpting, and right. you got thrown into sculpting. Yeah, yeah. Is that something that you enjoyed, just sort of having to pick things up like that? Oh, God, yes. I think the one thing that, that came out of all of this is I always look forward to being asked to do something I've never done before. That was the exciting part. I guess it's because Walt gave you the belief that you could do something. When he asked you to do it, you knew you were going to do it no matter what. And so as the years went on, even though I wasn't with the Disney organization, I just loved challenges. I just loved them. It was just it was what brought life to everything for me. Mm-hmm. Once again, something I think a lot of people try to just stick with what they know. I'm guilty of that. I don't like to do something until I can do it well, Yeah. which that doesn't work very well because you have to learn. Yeah. And so I really admire people like you who embrace doing something new and really getting joy out of that. Well, now, there's a, this is a good time to tell you a little story. I happen to have a little necklace with a little a medallion on it, and it's really my whole philosophy. And on one side of it, it says, you know, always color outside the lines, which is something that I always did. And the other side said, always believe in your crazy ideas. <laughs> and I think those two statements really represent who the hell I am, you know, and I just love it. That's great. That is a great philosophy. It I is. like that. It is. It's funny because Marie found it, read it somewhere, and she told me about it. She's, they're describing you. <laughs> <laughs> because I always did color outside the lines. I mean, everything I did was just a little to the left and a little to the right, but night on, right on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like walking around the model shop on your hands. 
you know, not very many people do that. So anyway, and having frisbee contests in the model shop, you know, throwing it all the way across the model shop with a frisbee. And Blaine Gibson was the best frisbee thrower that that we ever had there. We just to have a ball throwing those back and forth with each other. Really? Well, you know what it was. We Walt allowed us to have fun. And he knew that as long as you were having fun and having a good time, you're going to do a good job. And so he let that open. I mean, there was never, I guess you could do some things that are really bad, but, I mean, if everything was playful, it was no problem, no problem. That sounds like a great environment to work in. Yeah, God, yes. And on the subject of being just a little left of center, just a little outside the lines, I've been really interested to hear the stories of the Museum of the Weird Concepts that you had come up with, which I know they turned into a comic book series recently, and um, your third CD of stories kind of focused on the Museum of the Weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could you give us kind of a little overview of what that was all about? Yeah, what happened was the first assignment I had when I started with WED after doing the... uh, Osright, Walt suggested that Yale Gracie, who was a layout man, and I work together as a team and come up with concepts for the Haunted Mansion because uh, there had never been a storyline put together on what the Haunted Mansion was going to be. See, Walt always wanted to build the Haunted Mansion way, way back when they first opened the park. So during those years prior to, you know, uh, when I started, uh, a lot of these people in animation had done some kind of crazy sketches of what uh, the mansion might be like and everything I saw was kind of a corny uh, haunted mansion and I thought that was um, that didn't work for me I felt that it should be surrealistic and that it should be scary and it should be kind of about as weird as you could get so I just always felt that that was the way I wanted to go and I had seen some films uh, movies that I'd gone to you know, you reach into your own research. You see things that you stick away that you say, that's really neat. I'm going to, I'm going to remember that. Well, what I did was I remembered a French film, The Beauty and the Beast, and the beast lived in this huge, huge castle. And when he came home at night, he'd walk down this big hallway, and to the right and left of him, as he walked down the hallway, were human arms holding torches. And, of course, they would lead him as he walked down there. They would move forward, and then when he got into his main dining room or living room or whatever it was, there was a fireplace, and then there were human heads as part of the architecture, and their eyes would look around the room, and green steam would come out of them. And I thought, now that's the kind of stuff that should be in the Haunted Mansion, things like that. And, of course, Fellini, Julia of the Spirits, had some real crazy stuff in it, too. So I started reaching into what I remembered that I'd seen in films to take it to the next level. So I don't have a clue where the candle man came from. I just drew him up one day and uh, decided it'd be kind of neat to have a man that was a candle at one time and he's all melted down. And, you know, the interesting thing about when you're doing things like this and after designing something and then actually having to build it, I actually figured out how the hell I would make it look like that he was uh, dripping. The whole thing was based on the fact that if he was sculpted properly and then you had some oil, real thick oil, that you released at the top of him and let the oil run down, it would give you the illusion that he was actually dripping. And, of course, you'd have a pan at the bottom that would collect the oil and then repump it back up to the top. 
So I thought it was kind of really a neat idea. I really wanted to see that one done, but uh, of course that never took place. But anyway, I just kept going. I did the Candleman, and then I did a chair that stood up and talked to you. I did a, a coffin clock. So it was just a matter of taking different pieces that you'd find in a, a spook house and uh, use them, you know. And I did also a, a, an organ, a crazy organ. And, of course, we had a, a skeleton playing the organ. So, you know, it was just having a lot of fun with all this crazy stuff, and it wasn't falling into the category of anything other than just imagination. Wow. Did you guys get to do things like that? a lot at the time where you would just have kind of a concept to work with that wasn't tied to I mean, it was tied to a project but not to a deliverable necessarily not like you need to work on this that has to be completed and show ready by this date or something but just more like here's this idea and we want to see if something comes of it see what you can do did that happen very often no not at all it depends on the project you're working on. Certain projects that we were given to work on uh, had a time frame. And uh, the Haunted Mansion did not have a time frame. The Walt had an idea that he wanted to have this Haunted Mansion, but he didn't have a time frame of when it had to be completed. So I know Yale and I worked for a solid year on crazy ideas. And then, of course, there was another couple years after that that people worked on it, including myself. So because there was no time frame. So therefore, there was that freedom, you know, to let your imagination run. Right. Did you prefer that kind of environment or did you prefer things that had those deadlines or did it matter? I think I preferred the ones with the deadlines because you knew that it had, it had to get done. You know, it, when you're working on something that you don't know when, when it's going to get done, you lose the uh, the whole essence of it, the power of it. And, uh, no, I really appreciated that. I know I had seemed like every project I ever worked on had to be done in a time frame. We did Small World in nine months. And if you really take a look at what we did in nine months, it's absolutely incredible because nothing's ever been done like that of that size and scope since. That's true. And, in fact, we just celebrated the 50th anniversary just very recently. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the World's Fair. Yes. Yeah, it seemed like it's a small world got a lot of the attention, but there were three other Walt Disney Imagining attractions that yeah, debuted exactly, there. Exactly, exactly. But the main one that you worked on, the one you spent the most time with, was it's a small world, correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I spent uh, well the nine months, actually more than nine months. I worked on the World's Fair projects probably for almost two years because I worked on the Ford Pavilion before Small World. So I can remember the day that Walt called us all in and said. And this is when we were doing all the other pavilions. And he said, well, there's one more piece of real estate uh, left at the World's Fair. He says, I'd like us to build something and put it on there. He says, I have an idea for a little boat ride. And we all thought he was nuts. <laughs> we thought, well, we just got Lincoln to stand up, and he wants to do a little boat ride. But nine months almost to the day, we opened it to Small World. That's incredible. And this seems like a great time to talk about it a little bit more. So what part did you play? in Small World. I know the one that I hear the most about and that I've seen the most about is uh, the Tower of the Four Winds yeah. out front. Yeah, that was Walt wanted, because of my propellers in the past, Walt wanted me to do a Tower of Propellers, so I was assigned to do that. Now, there's something really interesting about it. It's a small world. It was not designed by one person. It was designed by a team. 
and everybody should be aware of that. And we all fit into it. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. Blaine Gibson sculpted all the children's heads, the singers and the dancers. He sculpted the heads. That was his responsibility. Mark Davis designed what the, the singers and the dancers did and where they were located, depending on what country they were in. Then his wife, Alice, designed and built all the costumes that went on those characters. And then my responsibility was to uh, design and build all of the toys. Uh, toys are entirely different. They're all paper mache toys that are in there. And then the other responsibility I had was sort of like being the glue. Once everything was getting built, I was the one that they used as the liaison to go over to the shops to where the sets were being built and, and review every set that was ever being built. And those sets were taken from models that were built in the model shop. And, of course, that was all Mary Blair's designs. And Mary Blair would do the beautiful renderings, and then the kids in the model shop would take those renderings and make little buildings out of them. So if you really look at it, it was a beautiful, beautiful team that put it together. And the interesting thing about it is we all overlapped each other. We never worked together. In other words, what Mark was doing, I knew he was doing it, and I was doing the toys, and he knew it, but we weren't working together on it at all. In other words, it was we each had our assignments. And by the time we got finished and it was all put together, yeah, it was it was all teamwork. And I just love that, that fact of teamwork. Wow. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, because I actually had, believe it or not, I had 30 people working for me building the toys. Wow. And that was really special, really special. Yeah. As we go through the attraction today, I know there's been some changes and, and updates and things, but those toys that are in there, that was kind of one of your big things on the inside is like, would it be like the kites and the chess pieces? Yeah. I'm trying to think of what other toys are in there. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the ones that, uh, this is a cute story. Yale and I first started developing the, the toys when we were over in the old Maple building. And Walt had been in Europe and he knew I was working on the toys. When he was over there, he found this little toy. It was a bicycle rider on a string. So one day he comes in my office and, and hands me this package of this, this toy, and he says, Happy birthday, Roly. And then he walked out, and, of course, Jack Ferguson was working with him. He says, Well, Roly, you're going to have to change your birthday to this day. He says, if, if Walt gives you it and says, Happy birthday, it better be your birthday. So we took the little toy out and put, put the string across, and we got this little guy on a bicycle going back and forth on the string. Well, I ended up actually physically building the one that's in Small World. It goes back and forth on this, on it's on a wire, mm-hmm. and it's still in Disneyland, which is I'm I'm very proud of. Oh yes, and the moment you mentioned it, I can picture it so clearly. That's wow. Yeah, you have to remember something. Walt always took us to the next level, whether it was him giving me a little toy and then having me actually really build it, or for him to say, "Really, why don't you make that a clock?" In other words, he always had some little statement to make that always made whatever you were doing ten times better. Hmm. Yeah, I heard a presentation not too long ago from uh, a couple of other Imagineers, and they mentioned something similar to that. I don't remember which one it was, but one of them said that you would work on something, and then Walt would come look at it, and he would make just a little suggestion, and you would think, 
why didn't I think of that before? Of course. And then you would do that. And then you'd want to do just even a little bit more than that. Yeah. Just because you wanted to, him to be happy because yeah. it was just, it meant so much to you. Well, he always knew how to just put the cherry on top of the ice cream. You know, it was, uh, it was just priceless. He was priceless. I, I got three or four things that he said to me that changed everything that I was doing, which I loved. So, Really? This, since you've just brought it up, can you maybe mention one or two of them here? Well, there's the clock uh, was, is the very best one. There's a, well, I'll back into it a little bit. This is a kind of a, another cute story. Uh, <laughs> we were walking Walt through the ride. We had to mock up the full-size ride in a soundstage at Disney Studios to show him before it was shipped to New York. So he, we would put him in a boat on wheels, and we'd push him through the boat so he'd see exactly what the sets and the animation, what the music and everything was. And then he and I would wander around through that area. I remember one time we were wandering around through, and he says, uh, you know, Rolly, he says, there's a holiday there. And I looked at him and said, what the hell's a holiday? And he said, well, it's a term that we use in the motion picture industry that that means there's a hole. There's something missing, so something has to be put there. So I looked at where the hole was, and I said, oh, well, I'll put a balloon up there with a little kid hanging on it. So that sounds like a good idea, really. <laughs> so then I learned the word holiday, which was kind of something that uh, we ran across on the TV not too long ago. Marie said, oh, my God, they used the word holiday. So <laughs> so they, yeah, that was that was just the way you know he was. He just little little comments that were so beautiful. Mm-hmm. You mentioned this clock. Yeah, well, when I finished doing the facade uh, at Disneyland of the Mall World, there was a platform when the boats went into the building, there was a platform that they went under and into. The, and Walt asked me, so what are you going to put there? And I said, I don't know. I said, maybe it'll be a place where we can have a band play or something. I said, I really didn't give it much thought. And he said, well, I think you should put a clock there. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so the very next day, I called Mary Blair, and I said, draw me a sketch of what a small world clock looks like. And she did, and so I took it and developed it into the clock that's there now. You know, you're absolutely right. That's one of the most iconic things about that yeah, whole yeah. attraction. Yeah. Wow. And then once everything was built at the studios and shipped out to New York for the World's Fair, uh, you were one of the ones, or maybe the one in charge of installation of these things, right, weren't you? Right, right, yeah. Yeah, Mary and I were back there probably the last two weeks before we opened it up. And so we were there every day, you know, while it was being installed. And one of the interesting things about it was that, you know, we always had fun. I knew that if the toys got broken uh, and they needed to be fixed once they got back there, because we never knew, you know, if when you're shipping stuff, what might happen. So I had this big box, and I had it filled with glitter and jewels and ribbons and, and all kinds of stuff. And on the outside of the box, and of course, in those days, uh, Mary loved martinis. So needless to say, we had quite a few martinis during those years. And uh, <laughs> so I put on the box, uh, it's a small world ride, just add gin. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the cute part about it is that when we were back there, some of the lids were laying around, and Mary and I didn't have anything to do. So we started doing Mary Blair little characters on the boxes. 
and uh, just recently they had a an exhibit at the uh, up at the museum, and two of those box lids were actually up there. I don't know how. I think we did about six of them. And we never knew what happened to them, but two of them made it to, uh, you know, the Disney Museum, which is great. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Another little side story. <laughs> I love the side stories. They're great. Yeah. <laughs> So were you there then the first day that It's a Small World opened yeah. to the fairgrounds? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What kind of reaction did you see from people as well, they rode it? Well, it was wild. It's kind of like being at Disneyland the day they opened Disneyland. There were so many, you know, like with the World's Fair, there was just tons and tons of people. So you didn't really get a chance to enjoy other than the fact that everybody was having a good time. The best times were that once it was opened and you could kind of wander around when it wasn't so crowded, then that's when it was really charming. Uh, the, the little restaurants were charming. You know, the Belgian waffles that were introduced to the United States was there, and that was charming. Uh, and of course, the shows were incredible. And so I think I thoroughly enjoyed the World's Fair from everything that I saw and and. And the other thing Walt told us, he said, now you guys go to every one of these shows and you might get some real good ideas of something that we might do at, at another time. So he always wanted us to have an open mind and, and always be looking for something that we'd never seen before. And I know for a fact that whenever we dealt with Walt, I knew he wanted to hear something that he'd never heard before or see something he'd never seen before. And that was what would intrigue him. And I think that's why the Museum of the Weird really intrigued him because he'd never seen anything like that before. <laughs> Neither did I. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, at the end of the fair, it went through 64 and 65, but then... Some most of that. It's a small world. Great moments with Mr. Lincoln, Carousel of Progress. Those more or less intact moved out to Disneyland. Yeah. What was it like? Can you talk a little bit about moving the attractions from the World's Fair well, back yeah. out to Disneyland? Yeah, just a little bit of a freaking nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I see. They management never told us in the model shop you know, where we were working that Walt wanted to bring the, all the attractions back to Disneyland. They never told us that. The management knew about it. And the next thing we knew about it was, okay, they're coming back. You better fix them. Well, can you imagine shipping all the sets back from the World's Fair into a warehouse and stacking them and, and having them shipped and banged and everything? And so I was taken over to this uh, warehouse with all these, you know, all lined up. And they said, okay, put it back together, Rolly. And uh, that was my responsibility to rebuild every one of those sets and put new flitter on it, new jewels on it, make sure that it was um, built properly and get it ready to be put into Disneyland. And the other thing was the Disneyland Small World was a much bigger building than the one at the World's Fair. So there was two or three areas that I had to redesign a whole new section. When you first come into the ride, it's, you know, you're in the North Pole. And that wasn't at the World's Fair. And then in the uh, island section, there was no island section. So we put in an island section. So it was um, it was a very creative jamming time again, you know. I can remember, this is another story, I can remember after I repaired everything, then I was there every day when it was being installed. And that's when, uh, when I took those little characters down there, those little chess pieces to paint when I was working there. But... I remember my beloved leader, Dick Irvine, I guess it was probably about 
six or seven days before opening at Disneyland. He says, you'll never open. It's not going to open on time. And he was just going bazoo uh, about that it wasn't going to open on time. Well, you got to do this, and you got to do that, and you got to do this. And I said, Dick, you know, it's going to open. Everything's fine. You had to be there on a daily basis to know exactly where you were on the project. I saw that when they were going to be finished, I knew it was going to be done. So the poor guy, I'm, no wonder he... It was later on he had a heart attack after I left the company. But I was surprised he didn't have one prior to that after dealing with me. So anyway, (laughs) because, you know, when you're living it, you know what's going on. Right. In fact, as I recall, I think I've heard you tell a story about another time where he was overseeing a project that you were in charge of that he didn't think you could get it done on time. Yeah, that's bizarre. Yeah he, right. yeah, he lied to me about the date that it was going to open because he didn't think I'd have it done on time. <laughs> and I, I fixed his wagon on that one. <laughs> did you know the story of what I, what I did to him? Please tell it. Well, he just, I don't know, for some reason, he just didn't think I, I had the background or, and I was a young guy and I didn't have a clue what I was doing or whatever. But anyway, once I found out that he had lied to me, well, then I, I made sure that it was going to be on time anyway. I didn't have any problem with that. So what happened was we were getting ready to supposedly the the date was going to be um, um, a Wednesday that I had to open the bazaar, and so every Friday I had to go to Dick Irvine and tell him how we were doing, where we were, and how it was going. And of course I brought him up to date. Well, that Friday, of course, uh, was a Friday before the the following Wednesday. So I was shipping all of this uh, sets to Disneyland Saturday morning down to be put in the building. So I uh, I met with him that day, and I said, well, you know, Dick, I said, tomorrow morning we're shipping all the sets down. He said, what? And I said, well, they we're shipping all the sets down. I said, you know, it's opening up next Wednesday, Dick. You know, we have to get it there in time to get the electrician to put all the electrical wiring in. He says, what? And so, you know, I could just see him panic. He didn't want to tell me that he lied to me. So he had to call Joe Fowler, who was in charge of Disneyland. He says, Joe, uh, we're moving. We've got to have uh, the building ready by tomorrow morning. And Joe says, but Dick, the floor's not in. <laughs> they made the guys work all night long to get the floor in. And I felt sorry for the poor guys that had to work all night long. But I thought, you know, you, you don't screw with the Lone Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> I taught my son that a long time ago. I said, you've got to be the Lone Ranger so many times in your life, and you don't screw with him. So so anyway, and then all of a sudden, the next thing I know was he's telling me, well, they changed the date. you know. So he lied to me again about the fact that they changed the date. But anyway, we got it all done, and Walt loved it. I know that Walt came down that night when, the, when we opened up the bazaar, and he was just a delight to be with. Mm. And you weren't given a lot to work with for that Adventureland Bazaar project. No, no. I had absolutely zip to work with. That was really by the seat of your pants project. I built most of that stuff that was in the bazaar. I got that out of the boneyard from Disneyland, uh, which was a, a place where they just trashed all kinds of stuff. But the stuff they trashed was gorgeous. Wow. So. This is when you you learn as you go. And then not only that, but you learn from the people that you're working with constantly. You know, see, a lot of people, there's a certain egotism that goes with some people 
to think that they have to do it. They have to come up with it. It's theirs or this. Not realizing that your team members are probably just as important, if not important, than you are. So I've always made sure that I've had team members around me, and I always gave them the freedom because I believed in them and just turn them loose instead of sitting on them and make them do it my way, you know. Mm-hmm. Is that something you learned from Walt? Yes. Yeah, because Walt was, see, first of all, you have to back into this. Walt was the best casting director that ever lived. He knew exactly what designers to put on what. A good example is that he had Mark and Claude do the uh, pilot ride. Well, in animation, Mark did the animated figures and Claude did the backgrounds. So when they did the pilot ride, Claude did the sets and Mark did the characters. So, you know, you learn that when you're having, you know, that you're working with a team, make sure you get team members that you can trust for the different requests that you're going to give them, you know, and believe in them and then support them. Sure. You give someone an assignment because you believe they can do it. Yeah. Otherwise, you shouldn't give them the assignment. Yeah, yeah. Then give them the chance to do that. Well, I I had a problem with my son in that area because I know I sent him to Hawaii to work on a sugar mill that I was helping design and everything. And I sent him over there to build the sets and stuff for it. And he says, you just dropped me off and went home. He said, how did you know I was going to do it? And I said, I knew you were going to do it. I said, I didn't have a question that you were going to do it. And so he realized that I trusted him from the very, very beginning. I knew he could do it. And uh, so it was kind of one of one of those neat things. I treated him like Walt treated me. So anyway, yeah, it was something that you learned from the old man. Right. Eventually, uh, and I don't remember the year at the moment, but you were made supervising art director of Disneyland. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was that a kind of a promotion? No, 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 no. The reason, the reason that I became supervising art director for Disneyland was once Walt passed away, then they wanted a bunch of guys to work on the Haunted Mansion. And, of course, Dick Irvine was in charge of that. And he didn't want me to work on the Haunted Mansion. So he wanted me out of the building. <laughs> no, seriously, he wanted me out of the building. So he sent me to Disneyland for three years. And... Uh, I still worked on stuff at WED, so I had an office there and worked there, but most of my time, I'd say 80% of my time was working on things at Disneyland, which was probably the best education I ever had because I had to work with every one of the the managers of every division, whether it was janitorial, whether it was maintenance, whether it was the paint, you know, whatever, or landscaping. I worked with every one of them because when you're a supervising art director, quote-unquote, you have to work with all the disciplines down there. And I was also in charge of night lighting, which is another story all in itself that turned out just great. I learned it as I, as I was doing it and then realized how weak the architects were not realizing that at nighttime the buildings have got to be lit like it's a shell set rather than just street lamps. Street lamps don't light the facades, you know. So it was a beautiful education for me, and I enjoyed it. I actually really thoroughly enjoyed those three years. Oh, good. So it's it's nice that you were put there basically to get you out of the way, but you could still enjoy it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a challenge. See, that's the other thing you got to think about, that I love the challenges. I want you to know that I actually physically changed every light bulb in bear country. Really? <laughs> you know, all the lights. Well, what happened was when a when light would burn out in any, in the, any parts of uh, Disneyland, you know, the street lamps and everything else. The electricians that were going out there at nighttime, 
if a light burned out, they didn't check to see what the wattage of the bulb was, and so they just put a bulb in there that once happened to be in their little wagon with them. And so what I did was I realized that there was a lot of wattage that was too bright. So I started cutting down on the wattage because they were only lighting themselves. They weren't lighting the, the walkways or anything. And so then I started doing floodlights uh, on the buildings and on the walkways. And uh, so it was an education for me to do it. So I was teaching myself as I went, and it was uh, it was neat. I know there was one area, as you walked around the uh, castle to the right, it was a real dark area, and the maintenance and the operations guys came to me and said, you know, it's really dark here. You know, even when people are walking here, it's dark. They said, what can we do to light the area? Well, there's a pond there, a beautiful pond. And I said, put a fountain in the pond and light the fountain because uh, water just sends light in every direction. So they did, and I think we did it for $1,800, and they were thrilled. But it's just a matter of knowing bits and pieces of what to do, you know. Right. And then, of course, by this time, uh, my time with the company had grown to where I really knew something what I was talking about. So, <laughs> so I had experience. And the cute part about it was nobody ever challenged me, which was funny. <laughs> they thought, oh, well, that's Rolly. He probably knows everything. So, <laughs> Which I didn't, but I made it up as I went. It's results that count, I guess. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> And, you know, I have to tell you that one of my favorite things anywhere and wherever I happen to be is fountains. I just, I love fountains. So to know that you had a hand in that one gives me yet another reason to appreciate and admire the work that you've done. Yeah, and I, and I, and I did it for maintenance. I didn't do it for, I didn't do it to entertain people. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, since we're talking about Disneyland itself, not too long ago, I interviewed Sam Genoway, the author of the Disneyland story, uh, and he quoted you in our interview describing Disneyland as uh, a giant salad. salad. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I love that visual. So can you talk a little bit about what you meant by that? Well, yeah, it's it's really interesting because everybody that would talk to me that would have been to Magic Mountain or to all the other theme parks in the United States, and they'd say, why is Disneyland so much better than all these other theme parks? And I said, well, it's like a salad. I said, the other parks are lettuce and tomatoes because they don't have anything in there but just one or two things. I said, Disneyland has two croutons. It has all the tasteful things that are in there that the other theme parks don't take into consideration as being part of their theme park. So everything that was put into Disneyland is immaculate, it's perfect, and the awnings, the umbrellas, and everything. So it makes it just an absolute gorgeous piece of work. And uh, so therefore, to me, uh, you know, like I said, the, the other ones were lettuce and tomatoes, but without any croutons. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you have to take a, an example. I'll give you an example of this. No other theme park has the popcorn wagons like Disneyland does. Disneyland's got these gorgeous little popcorn wagons, and in the wagon, the little detail is that there's a, a little character turning the crank uh, that's, that's releasing, supposedly, the popcorn into the machine. But nobody else would worry about having a little character turning a crank in the top of the popcorn wagon. And the other thing that happened that I did when I was down there was that all the popcorn wagons were all over the park, but they were all Main Street popcorn wagons. And I said, no, no, no. You don't put a Main Street popcorn wagon in bear country. 
So I had one delightful little gal that worked with me. So I said, I want you to redesign all the popcorn wagons to fit the area that they're in because that's the way Walt was. In other words, when he sold merchandise in bear country, it's something that you look like you bought in bear country. If you bought it in Tomorrowland, it looks like it came from Tomorrowland. So Walt carried the theme right on down, and I felt that that's the way it should be. A good example is that if you went into Aunt Jemima's Pancake House way back then, they were making Mickey Mouse faces with pancakes. Little details like that is what makes it the beautiful salad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something in it for everybody. Yeah, yeah. And then I wanted to ask you about one other project before we talk about some people for a little bit. And it's simply because you kind of carried it through to a couple different locations. Uh, as I understand it, you were also involved in bringing It's a Small World to Walt Disney World. Yeah. What did you have to do? Well, first of all, what was your role in doing that? Well, to design the damn thing. <laughs> okay, that's what I thought. Now, you know, what happened, and I talked to Walt about this, when you were in uh, Small World... That brings us to the end of this week's show. A special thank you to Rolly Crump for being my guest, and to you for listening. Next time we finish Rolly's interview, hearing more about projects he worked on, and about some great people he worked with and for, including, of course, Walt Disney. So come back next time to hear more from Imagineer Rolly Crump. If you're currently doing something because of your love for Disney, you've written a book, you're blogging, writing or performing music, art, whatever, and you want to tell people about it and why it matters to you, I want to hear from you. I also want to talk to and hear from people who've worked for Disney. So if you've worked for the Walt Disney Company in any capacity, and you want to share a positive story, or if you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience, and you've had an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic, or had any special Disney experience you want to share, or give a compliment or a thank you for anything Disney's done, I'd love to hear from you, too. In any or all of those cases, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY anytime, 24 hours a day. And if you want to be a guest on the show, let's talk. Let me know. We'll see what we can do. Remember, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Choose from titles like In the Shadow of the Matterhorn by past guest David Smith, Walt Disney, The Mouse That Roared by Jeff Lindbergh, and, of course, my book, Faith in the Magic Kingdom. By the way, all three of these were read by Tales from the Mouse House podcast co-host and highly talented audiobook narrator Al Kessel. To download your free audiobook today, go to storiesofthemagic.com audible. Again, that's storiesofthemagic.com audible for your free audiobook. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to the show and can rate it. Again, it's getting to be a little while since I've had any ratings in iTunes, and I haven't had any yet on Stitcher Radio. That's a new feature they just recently introduced, so I'd love to get a couple of ratings on there. So, please go to whichever place it is that you're listening to this through, and if there's a way to rate and review it, I'd appreciate you taking a couple of minutes to do that. 
If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode, too. Like in this one, I'm going to have links to where you can get Rolly's book and the companion follow-up CDs that have gone with it. It's kind of a cute story, and then more cute stories, and so on. Like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash storiesofthemagic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash storiesofmagic and tweet out that you're listening. Pin it on Pinterest, plus one on Google+. Just basically tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories. And this tale continues next time. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.